0: Welcome to the EAE Podcast, where you're listening to episode number 17 in our series. To our subscribers out there, we appreciate your ongoing dedication to the EAE Podcast. If you're not yet subscribing, we do hope you'll continue to seek us out as we publish new episodes every two weeks. I'm your host, Laura Rumbly, Associate Director for Knowledge Development and Research at the EAE. World Press Freedom Day is observed globally on May 3rd, and for this episode of our series, which we're publishing on May 5th, 2021, we felt this would be an opportune moment to reflect on the status of academic freedom in Europe and elsewhere. To get there, we've turned to Sinead O'Gorman, the European Director of Scholars at Risk, From its beginnings at the University of Chicago in 1999, Scholars at Risk has grown over the last 20 plus years into a respected international network of higher education institutions and individuals whose aim is to protect threatened scholars, prevent attacks on higher education, and promote academic freedom and related values. Scholars at Risk Europe is based at Maynooth University in Ireland and is focused on connecting and coordinating the national Scholars at Risk sections and partner networks across Europe. It also works to strengthen the collective voice of these actors at the European level and to foster informed policymaking in relation to the protection of scholars and the respect for academic freedom around the world. As we hear from Sinead O'Gorman, there are real challenges and encouraging new developments in this work. Sinead, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation today. We really appreciate it. Before we get involved in the deeper discussion about the specifics of the work that you do, I wanted to ask you for just a little bit of of personal background, if I may. How did you become involved in the work of supporting academic freedom and what has this meant to you personally?
1: Sure. Thank you so much, Laura. I'm really delighted to be a part of this EAIE series. So I come from a family of teachers and growing up I had uh, many international education exchange opportunities. I studied French and English literature in Dublin uh, and I spent my Erasmus year in Nice in the 1990s and then another year in Paris after graduating. Um, And afterwards I had a, a wonderful opportunity to do research on the literature of Quebec while I lived in Montreal. So for me, education and research and mobility you know, the the ability to travel and to learn, all of these things went hand in hand and it was something I completely took for granted. Um, And it was, When I began working for the Irish Council for International Students, which was almost 20 years ago now, um, and there we advised students and researchers from all over the world on studying and working in Ireland. And there I first encountered this phenomenon of exit visas. Uh, Now I'm sure many EAI members working in international offices are very familiar with exit visa requirements. And that's where a person is required to obtain a government issued document to be allowed to leave their country. And around that time, there was some publicity in the Irish media about the situation of a human rights activist. Uh, She was from Uzbekistan. Her name was Elena Urlaiva. And there was publicity because her home authorities had refused her application for an exit visa to leave her country just for a week or two to travel to a conference in Dublin. And she was due to speak in Dublin about her human rights situation in Uzbekistan and what it meant to be a, a human rights activist in that country. And, and when I listened to that, it struck me that, you know while the cases of, of human rights activists and journalists were for very good reason, gaining some degree of media attention, there were a lot more, let's say mundane cases that were completely under the radar, kind of ongoing denials of exit visas for students or for researchers who didn't see themselves as human rights activists, but whose studies or research were somehow deemed challenging or politically sensitive. Uh, And of course, this is to say nothing of the decisions that students or scholars no doubt made themselves to pursue other safer paths of study or research, uh, just so that exit visas might not be blocked, or in other words, to self-censor. And then a whole other category of students and scholars who decided not to bother at all with the bureaucracy and you know, thinking, why would I draw attention to myself and decided perhaps to stay at home? And so this degree of control over the freedom of movement, it's something that I, and I know so many of us take for granted, uh, and it might seem at first kind of absurd or maybe bureaucratic, but I think that its implications for academic freedom are really obvious and they were terrifying to me. And so this led me uh, eventually to apply for a position with a great organization that's based in London called the Council for Assisting Refugee Academics. And that has been around since the 1930s, uh, supporting refugee academics. And that uh, led me eventually to the Scholars at Risk Network, where I've been working for about 14 years now. And I, I really feel very privileged actually to be involved in this kind of work. It it seems that, you know, so crucial to the public good for scholars and students to be free to pursue their work and to share their work freely and without fear. And, you know, it's often the job of a scholar to write or say things that others might not want to hear, but of course that need to be heard.
0: So I love these stories of, you know, how we evolve, particularly as young people at the beginning of our careers, finding interest, uh, leading to other interests, leading to new organization, et cetera. Really, really interesting. We tend to see Europe as a bulwark of academic freedom. Is this an accurate perception? And if it isn't, in a sense, what are some of the major threats to academic freedom in Europe today?
1: Yes, well... uh... Some of your listeners might have uh, read about the Academic Freedom Index, um, which is an, an index that was recently launched to assess academic freedom levels around the world and also to assess how those levels evolve over time. And in their most recent report just last month, academic freedom was seen to be on a downward trajectory everywhere in the world. And unfortunately, Europe was not any exception you know, to this trend. At Scholars at Risk, we look at, we talk about how threats to academic freedom and to scholars uh, seem to exist along a continuum. And if we think of those ranging from very subtle threats like self-censorship, let's say, or harassment through to very severe threats that might uh, include physical threats or violence, If we look at it in those terms, then until pretty recently in Scholars at Risk's work, there were very few threats reported from within Europe that uh, and these tended to be the more on the more subtle end of the spectrum. Now, that has definitely changed over the past few years. And on the more severe end of the spectrum, there are two member states uh, of the European higher education area that are figuring right at the bottom of the academic freedom index. And those two are Belarus and Turkey. In Belarus, you know, it's been widely publicized. We're seeing the continued detention and arrest of students and scholars, um, many of them just because they're taking part in peaceful protests. And in Turkey, after that crackdown and massive purge of scholars, Um, that began several years ago in in 2016, there are thousands of dismissed academics that are still facing really long delays in appealing their dismissals and they just can't continue their work in academia. And so our network is is supporting many of those scholars from Turkey by arranging positions for them to temporarily continue their their work from from universities within Europe and elsewhere. But then on the more moderate end of the spectrum, but still pretty serious, We're seeing threats in in places like Poland, Hungary, Uh, Romania and Russia, and these are taking the form of um, legal or administrative actions to curtail academic freedom or or the related freedom of institutional autonomy. Maybe some some quick examples. In in particular, there's this problem of strategic lawsuits against public participation uh, that they call SLAPs. And one very high profile case uh, was the case of Dr. Sadurski in Poland, who is a law professor at the University of Warsaw. And he was sued for... public comments that he made criticizing the policies of the ruling party. In Hungary, of course, the situation of CEU, the Central European University, being forced out of Budapest—that one is well known—but it's just one part of a, a larger pattern of attacks on institutional autonomy in Hungary. And then in Russia, uh, there's a, foreign a so-called foreign agent law that really deters Russian scientists from taking part in research that's supported by international funders, and, and that also serves as a deterrent to engage with their international colleagues elsewhere. And then if I might just add that, that, you know, I think it was just again in the last months, we saw that threats can also come from outside of Europe, but to scholars who are working within Europe. And so after the EU imposed sanctions on certain senior government officials in China, the Chinese government retaliated by issuing sanctions on academics and research institutes within Europe. And that was specifically because of their China related work. And this affected uh, some experts that we know in uh, Sweden, in the UK and in Germany, as well as their families actually who are now subject to a travel ban and asset freezes. Uh, and, And the sanctions also affect Chinese citizens and Chinese institutions and ban them from having dealings with these scholars in Europe and their institutions. So clearly this is serious business. We still also are seeing some threats on the subtle end of the spectrum. And this is more, I think, in the category of a gradual erosion of respect for expertise. And we saw that in the Brexit moment, this kind of damaging anti-intellectualism, but then also in that category are more sort of structural or competitive pressures uh, around the marketization of higher education. And the problem there is that in the midst of all of these competing pressures, there is a risk that values like academic freedom will be neglected. And this isn't always because, you know, a university doesn't want to protect academic freedom. It might be that they, they're simply tempted to shy away from the complications, especially when, when it comes down to academic freedom issues in international partnerships, for example. But thankfully, it's not all doom and gloom. I'll just mention maybe very briefly some some good news on the Europe front. So, and, and in particular, over the last year, academic freedom has been very much in the spotlight at the intergovernmental level. So we know, for example, that there will be uh, references to academic freedom in the Horizon Europe and the Erasmus Plus legal texts. I, I don't know yet what that language says, but if nothing else, this move, I think, will have... Uh, symbolic meaning, and that should be pretty powerful. And then late last year, the European higher education area, the Council of Europe and the European research area, they each issued separate uh, statements and recommendations on academic freedom. So it's clear that there is recognition of the issue and and of the value. But of course implementation now has to be the number one priority. Uh, And this is really where scholars at Risk's focus is right now in trying to press for civil society and universities to work closely with governments to devise very specific um, implementation measures.
0: So there is clearly plenty to keep you busy, you know, in the work that you're doing, a really wide scope of matters of concern um, affecting individuals right up through entire systems at national and and international levels. Very worrisome to hear about some of the trends in these different contexts, but also encouraging too, I, I would say that there are signs that there are elements kind of being baked into Um, relationships and and into structures that hopefully will strengthen the the status of academic freedom over time. That's right. And that question of of time really does intrigue me. Last year, I know that Scholars at Risk published its 20th anniversary report. And I'm curious if you might be able to reflect a little bit on how the work of supporting endangered scholars has evolved over that timeframe. Um, And if I may just kind of tack on to that question In the recent context uh, in which we've all been living under such unusual circumstances with the COVID-19 pandemic, I'm also curious about how that situation may have been affecting scholars at risk's work even just over the last year
1: sure that the work certainly has evolved um, laura over time and in our first 10 years so, so as you say we're 20 years old at this stage in our first 10 years we were focused almost entirely on direct assistance to scholars who are targeted for their work and ideas and this work mainly involved arranging teaching and research positions for scholars who weren't able to continue their work safely at home in safe places and so as well as organizing campaigns for scholars at in prison. And over that first decade, scholars at risk built up a very strong network of higher education institutions. And that network now includes over 500 institutions in more than 40 countries and we've helped to arrange positions in that time for about 1300 scholars. So then over the second decade of our work we were receiving more and more requests for assistance and we saw that threats to academic freedom were clearly spreading and that there were more governments that were implementing repressive measures that aimed at curtailing not only academic freedom but civil society and so that's where you know it was clear there was a shrinking space for for civil society and academic freedom. So this meant that we had to do two things at the same time. We were trying to increase our direct assist- assistance work um, to place at-risk scholars at universities, but then at the same time, developing activities to get at those root causes. And of course, you know, any effort to, to try to address root causes is, of course, a very long-term endeavor that involves so many things, raising awareness, demanding accountability, and uh, working to promote different practices that respect academic freedom. So for us, it was very important to begin documenting attacks on scholars and students through our academic freedom monitoring project. And we also began then issuing an annual report, the Free to Think report, to, to try to get this data out to policymakers. And then more recently, we partnered with the Berlin based Global Public Policy Institute to launch that academic freedom index that I was mentioning earlier you you were asking about the ways in which the pandemic has affected scholars at risk's work um it has certainly exacerbated threats we've seen you know that there are scholars that are involved in in researching or developing responses to the the coronavirus that can face threats if their work contradicts official state narratives or, or researchers who are analyzing the government responses to the crisis, for example, uh, or if they're reporting on failures of government policies, those researchers are sometimes facing threats to uh, either to remain silent or to to kind of toe the, the government line for the scholars needing to take up temporary positions that we're helping uh, people outside of their home countries. We saw that restrictions on international travel led to huge delays for some of them in taking up those positions or um, finalizing their legal status in the host countries. But we, we were really relieved that um, a number of universities and other host organizations in Europe, they offered to extend their fellowships or positions for researchers at risk. So that, that was a very good thing.
0: You, of course, are very familiar with the EAIE, and you know that at the heart of our work is all things related to the internationalization of higher education. I was wondering if you might be able to reflect a bit on how internationalization in higher education can contribute to advancements specifically with respect to academic freedom. And from your perspective, can these be mutually reinforcing dynamics?
1: I think they can, and and I I really like the positive framing in the question, Laura, because more often we're asked about or or kind of presented with examples where uh, these forces are in tension, where the forces of internationalization are somehow pushing against or in tension with academic freedom. But I I think that internationalization in higher education can absolutely contribute to advancing academic freedom. I listened to um, your excellent interview, actually, with Alan Goodman um, of IIE, and he he talked about how of the institute for international education and he talked about how universities need foreign policies. I would add that academic freedom should be a visible strategic priority within those universities foreign policies and if I might just maybe give three concrete ways that uh, internationalization and indeed possibly EAIE listeners and members uh, might contribute to advancing academic freedom. First, I, th- I think we really need to normalize and, and kind of mainstream the discussions about academic freedom, not only in international partnerships, but first within our home universities. And this means, you know, not just reacting when crises occur, but taking a very proactive approach. To academic freedom. There are uh, many institutions that have statements in place on academic freedom, but there are much, much fewer institutions that have procedures or mechanisms that are ready to implement the commitments that they've made. So just simple examples of that might include setting up some kind of standing committee um, or maybe an ombudsperson at the institution. And and their remit would it would have to go beyond just looking at complaints and and thinking about how to be more proactive and organizing regular activities and open discussions about academic freedom on campus. There is actually some very good work underway in the UK at the moment that um, people may be aware of on the academic freedom, or sorry, it's called the Academic Freedom and Internationalization Working Group. And they are working towards a model code of conduct for academic freedom in the context of internationalisation, um, and that that work, you know, if it, if it is successful and taken on board by UK universities, it could offer quite a good model for for other countries. The second area that I wanted to to suggest was I do think we need to do more to make the connection between academic freedom and quality in higher education very explicit, and that scholars at risk we're we're pressing for one very particular action in this regard at the moment. We think that we should be pressing for consideration of academic freedom in international higher education rankings. So at the moment, we have a situation where there are countries that are climbing the university rankings that are at the very bottom of the academic freedom index. And this is simply because we're not making explicit this clear link between you know, free and open research and quality. And I think the Academic Freedom Index can be very useful there. And then maybe finally, wouldn't one very practical way to advance academic freedom, while at the same time contributing to internationalization efforts on the home campus. And that's, uh, you know, going back to our roots, the activity that Scholars at Risk has been involved in from the start, um, asking universities to host at-risk scholars. And many EAIE members in Europe and around the world are already doing this. There are three three governments in Europe that have developed national fellowship schemes also to support at-risk scholars, um, France, Germany, and Finland. Um, And those are, again, you know, excellent examples that could be replicated elsewhere in Europe. And we have quite recently joined forces with several of those partners across Europe involved in different schemes for researchers at risk. Uh, We came together in an EU-funded project called Inspire Europe, and we're working together to try to make Europe, I guess, a better working environment for researchers at risk. Uh, A key part of that work is calling on the European Commission to launch a dedicated fellowship scheme for researchers at risk. And and we think that, you know, of course, it's needed by the individuals themselves. But in addition to providing that urgent support to the researchers that need it, this kind of support would also serve to publicly highlight the crucial role of scholars uh, in democratic societies and academic freedom in, in democratic societies.
0: Sinead, I always walk away from our conversations having learned so much and feeling incredibly inspired, and this is no exception to that rule. Thank you for giving us these insights into the work that you're doing and into also the many ongoing challenges for both the preservation and the expansion of academic freedom around the world.
1: Thank you so much, Laura, it's been a pleasure.
0: That was Sinead O'Gorman, who serves as the Director for Scholars at Risk Europe, the European office of the Global Scholars at Risk Network. Our session notes for this episode feature additional resources on some of the topics we've addressed in this conversation with Sinead, so I hope you'll check those out. So what else is happening at the EAIE these days, you might be wondering? Well, plenty, in fact. We're gearing up for the opening of registration for the EAIE Community Exchange on May 26th, so we hope you'll stay tuned for that announcement. For the readers among us, the EAE's member magazine Forum has just released its spring 2021 issue. It's focused specifically on Europe and the Global South and features a really excellent selection of articles exploring that broad and very engaging theme. Finally, we currently have in circulation the EAE Engagement Survey, where we're collecting feedback on the many different ways that the EAE serves its members and the wider international education community. We would love to receive your input. So if you're interested in completing the survey and it somehow hasn't reached you yet, please write to us at info at EAE.org. But please act quickly. The survey closes on May 11th. As always, thank you for liking and sharing the EAE podcast on social media. We'll be back in two weeks time with a new episode. Until then, all good wishes to you from the EAE.